Well, good, uh, good morning to you. It's been a little bit since I was here. Um, we uh, had the discipleship men's class yesterday, and uh, all I can tell you is we, uh, we discussed a yellow bus. <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll have to ask you to talk to Sam to figure out what that was. All right. Um, no, it's good to be back with you. My family, Janet, and the kids are, are at home this weekend, and uh, we just uh, celebrated our 34th anniversary last weekend. We got home Tuesday night, and so um, it didn't seem wise to go on the road again uh, 72 hours later. So she stayed at home with the children, and uh, I'm here with you. Um, I have to tell you, it's uh, being able to work with the uh, six brothers here. Well, Sam Yoon is from uh, the other assembly, but being able to work with these six men has been a real privilege and honor, and I've enjoyed it immensely. And um, I pray that uh, the Lord would bless them as they serve him. Let's do this. I want to open in prayer and, and ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 6 in just a moment. Our Father, as we come to you this hour, we want to seek your face and, and your grace that, that all that is said and done is, first of all, to the glory of the Savior. And then we would like to ask you, Father, to, to teach us. Teach us your word. Teach us your precepts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, um, we have back at home a, a young people's prayer meeting. It's 6.30 in the morning. Um, guess what we do at that meeting? We pray. That's our only, only goal is to pray. And uh, it's been going on for almost six years now. Six years. We, uh, or five years, excuse me, five years. And uh, more recently, in the last year, we've been averaging 10 people, 6.30 in the morning. Some of them looked as if they just rolled out of bed because they did. Some of them had been up for a while. And as we gather, we've made it our goal to pray, and specifically for our assembly, our church, and the work of the gospel. Paul said, pray for me that a door for the gospel would be open. And that's what we decided to pray. So this summer has proven to be exceptionally interesting because as we prayed, those same young people moved, I think, through prayer, organized, and outreach. That was last Saturday. Those same young people go out door to door every Wednesday evening before meeting. Those same young people are, um, are running the children's club, and we just started last Tuesday, and, and we doubled our numbers from last year. We went from 11 to 22, 100% increase. We think that's great. Those same young people come and they tell stories of who they're speaking with the conversations they have at their workplace. And the only thing that changed was that we simply began to pray. That's it. We didn't come up with any fancy method. We didn't do any more canvassing. We didn't go out and, and speak to, to thousands of people. We just asked God. And we exercised the great right and privilege of every believer in Jesus Christ and the most powerful weapon known to mankind, prayer. I believe that one of the major matters of the church today is we need to be taught how to pray. 
Well, one interesting little story happened. Um, so as they went door to door, they met people that we were praying for them. One of those couples showed up Wednesday night prayer meeting. They didn't know the Lord. At least we don't think so. And so the person who was uh, uh, leading the meeting gave the gospel. It was really kind of humorous. That person looked around and saw everybody in the room. They're all smiling back because they all know the gospel needed to be preached that night. The whole body came together. How, is it, how does the body of Christ do that? We, it began on our knees in our little, little closet called our basement, and we prayed. It was fantastic. Another brother, he said to me, well, we were going to our, uh, the apartment complexes around the chapel, around our building, and we went to one, and they said to us, oh, we can't let you pass that out. And we said, oh, okay, we understand. But if you send us a PDF, we'll email it to all the residents here. <laughs> they were done in 10 minutes. It was a very hot day. They were very happy about that. Prayer. We began to talk about it last spring when I was with you. It was Matthew chapter 6 that we selected as a text. If you remember, we read the following words. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily, our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's very similar verbiage to Luke chapter 11, but I think that was a different occasion. The Lord Jesus in Luke 11 was asked by the disciples to teach them how to pray as John taught his disciples how to pray. No doubt they saw the Lord Jesus modeling prayer. Whenever you couldn't find the Savior, he was off praying. They woke up, he was praying. They went to sleep, he was praying. The Lord Jesus himself, the Son of God, was a praying man. I think that should say something to us, for it says in, in another portion in Luke that the teacher or the student will be just like the teacher. And if our teacher prays, so must we. There's no doubt about it. So when we began looking at this several months ago, we looked at the phrase, our Father in heaven. This idea of his identity, that we, we, we know him, he knows us. And the intimacy, the idea of an Abba Father is the idea in Aramaic, Aramaic. Inclusion, our Father, that we belong, that he wants us to own him. Our Father, we want, he wants us to be able to say he, that he belongs to us and we belong to him. He loves that intimacy and this intuition that the Father knows what you have before you ask. If you ask for a, a, a bread, would he give you a snake? And the answer is no, he would never do that. He would never give you a stone or anything of that nature. This, this title, Father, and the personal possessive pronoun, our, speaks of our closeness. And this is how we begin to pray. This is how we approach our Father in heaven. This is the grand privilege of a child of God. Then we looked at that phrase, hallowed be your name this idea of, of regarding as unique, separate, holy, 
the person of God as represented and depicted in his name. Knowing his character, knowing how he thinks, knowing how he reacts, knowing how he would, he would sympathize. There's a great example of this in the book of Exodus. Do you remember when, and when uh, a lot, or excuse me, Moses was uh, uh, on Mount Sinai and there was this problem with the calf and the, and the the gold went into the fire, Aaron says, and the calf came out and people worshipped an idol, breaking the law of God, the first two commandments of the Decalogue within minutes after the ink of God's finger had dried. Moses dashes those tablets of stone, grinds up that calf into gold, puts it into water, has them drink it, which, by the way, was a treatment for arthritis. And then, and then what happens is Moses goes, you didn't know that, did you? <laughs> Grind up your rings and you won't have arthritis. I know. Anyway, so where was I? Where was I? Oh, yeah. And so Moses was, was there and he says, now I'm going to go talk to the Lord and perhaps we can, I can intercede for you. And this is what he says. He says, um, I ask you to forgive the stubborn people and if not, blot me out of your book. Who speaks like that? I would have said this. Well, you know, they are stubborn people, so, you know, it's hard, I know, but can you forgive them? I would never substitute myself in there. Do you know that when Moses substituted himself, it resonated with the heart of God? Why is that? Because ever since the dawn of Genesis chapter 3, you have this story, a repetitive story of substitution, taking who is guilty and replacing him who is with someone who is not guilty so that the person who is guilty can actually be ascribed, given the status of non-guilt so that the guilty could actually live. That's the story of the cross, isn't it? That's the story of the gospel. That's what Christ did on the cross, and he put himself in harm's way so that you and I, who are guilty because of our hearts and because of our sin, can actually be declared right in the eyes of God's judicial proceedings. That's how it works. And when Moses said that, it, I would believe it resonates with the heart of God. There were several sacrifices already in the history of Israel. This is what it means. Hallowed be thy name. I understand who you are and what you are and what makes you tick. And I therefore will order my, my intercessions and petitions according to that basic fund of knowledge. The problem is we don't know God that well. We don't know what makes him tick. We don't know how he thinks. We, we, we don't read the scriptures to... to to learn about the person of God, we read the scriptures to well, check off our Bible, read through. I know, I've done that. It's sad. It, it, we want to know the Lord. Let him who glories, glories in this, that he knows and understands me. Hallowed be thy name. We spent some time talking about that, and, and, and we added the concept of fear of the Lord to those discussions. But today... I, I, want to, I want to look at the verse 10. And would you read that with me? See it in your scriptures. It says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, for those of you who like to have order in, in these kinds of discussions, I'm going to give you three P's today. Three P's. The first P will be precept. We're going to talk about the precept of this idea of the kingdom. It's a, it's a, it's a large area of discussion. We have less than 25 minutes. So it's going to be precept. Then we're going to talk about a principle, a huge, invaluable principle 
And that will be in the phrase, your will be done. And then finally, we're going to talk about practice. Practice. And when we do that, we're going to talk about how this will of God gets done on the earth. That phrase, on the earth, as it is in heaven. So three Ps that we'll try to keep in order and in mind. So the first one is precept. And it's, it's in the phrase, your kingdom come. Now, that's a huge concept in the New Testament and the Old Testament, and we have to treat it just so. Failure to do so could lead to some confusion. So I'm going to try to, to summarize this concept in, in a few paragraphs, and it's very difficult. When the Old Testament talked about the kingdom, there was several different, um, how should we say, um, facets to the concept of the kingdom of God and in, in the New Testament, kingdom of God slash kingdom of heaven. Granted, for those of you who are Bible scholars, those two concepts have slightly different, diff slight differences, but incredibly overlap each other. So for the sake of our discussion, we'll lump them as the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven as synonymous. But I do understand there is some slight differences that, for, uh, that have a topic for another day. So let's just talk about this kingdom idea. In Daniel, and some of these you can't turn to because our time is limited, but in Daniel it talks about this everlasting kingdom of God, that the, the kingdom of God will have an eternal rule of the king, that is God himself, and it'll, it'll, span, the, it'll, it'll span past when time ends. Everlasting is the idea. It's this sovereign um, majestic uh, reign of God himself. Now, as you see things today, especially on this planet, you would say, well, I don't think God's reigning down here. Well, you actually would be correct in part. All right, so the first concept is this everlasting idea, this longevity and sovereign rule. Now, there's a second concept that we want to really uh, hammer away. And this concept is something that was said in Luke chapter seven, 17, verse 21, which says, um, for indeed, the kingdom of God is within you, or translated, in your midst. He's referring about the person of the Lord Jesus. He's the king, and he's literally there. And so, it would be legitimate for him to say, well, actually, the kingdom of God, that is the king himself, the ruler of the kingdom, is with you as we speak. And John the Baptist even took on that, uh, understood that same idea, and he said things in a similar way that uh, uh, betrays this understanding that Jesus is the king, and he, while he did his earthly ministry, it was like the kingdom was present. And that's why you saw how everything always obeyed him. The demons would obey him. The Gadarene demoniac, the cast the demons out, a legion of such, perhaps upwards to a thousand, would run, into the, uh, run to the swine that would then drown, them, drown themselves in the Sea of Galilee. Diseases would obey him. See, the king was present. Sovereign rule. Diseases, nature, space, time. All that would be subject to him. They were so amazed on the Sea of Galilee. Who is this man that even the seas and the wind would obey him? The kingdom. The king is there. He's ruling. That's the idea. Now, it was temporary because he offered himself to the people for which he was to rule, and they said, thank you, but no thank you. How about death to you? 
And at first it looks like, oh, wow, what a terrible end result. Why doesn't the king, who has such great power over land and sea and natural elements, just take out this people group who would reject him? But that was also part of the overall plan of God, so that Jesus Christ would die on that cross and suspend himself in an unseen judicial situation where judgment was being poured out, punishment was being poured out for the, for the human race upon Jesus Christ. So that you, you, non-Jews, could be part of the kingdom. Interesting, huh? Now there's, there's a third part of this idea of this kingdom of God, and this is perhaps most interesting to you and I, and it's talked about by the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 13 through 19, which are what we, what is what we call the kingdom parables. And really, it's describing sort of a, a, a section of the overall timeline of God's rule. And this idea is referring to what's going on in the here and now. And so you hear these parables that describe soils, soils that would reject God and one soil that would receive God. Uh, souls of men's heart is what those, that parable is referring to. You'll, you'll hear a parable that talks about how there is a, a sower and he sows the seed in the field and an enemy comes along and, show, and so, show, <laughs> sows the, the false, uh, the fake seed, the wrong grass, and it looks just like the wheat and you can't tell the difference. And so they say, should we rip it out now? He says, no, wait to the end. And the angels will come and separate the wheat from the tares. He says, so there'll be an intermingling in this phase, in this interim time of the kingdom. There'll be this intermingling, which you, you can't always tell the difference. And so you have these parables that talk about or describe the kingdom of God right now in this era of time. And then you have a fourth one, which is this idea of, of the literal reign of God, that is Jesus Christ, on this earth. Now that's a big one, because when the Lord Jesus was on the earth, he actually said, the ruler of this world is come. He was referring to Satan. Now whether you know it or not, it was at the fall, that is in Genesis chapter 3, when all the um, blank check given to mankind. Remember what God said to Adam and Eve. Now, I want you to go subdue the earth. I've given you authority so, so you could do this. I want you to have all that's there in terms of your responsibility and authority and jurisdiction. And yet, when we decided to sin, we, in essence, signed over what we were given and we, got, we signed it over to the arch enemy of God. And thus, he was then the ruler of this domain. And Jesus even acknowledged that. The ruler of this world has come. Now, what was beautiful at the cross was a ruler of this world, that is Satan, is described in the book of Colossians to have been taken to heaven and been defeated and paraded as a defeated foe in heaven. That's what happened at the cross. But in the Old Testament, it promised that there would be a literal time when Jesus Christ would reign physically over the whole earth. And a lot of times when the reader of the, the Jewish reader of the Old Testament would read that, they look forward to this day. It's described in Psalm 2, it's described in Isaiah all over the place, in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. It's everywhere, this idea of the kingdom of God and the, the rule of God upon this earth. 
And so you'll hear things in Isaiah that describe how the, the wolf and the lamb will sit next to each other and there will be no um, uh, 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 carnivore, there will be no attacking one of the other. Uh, you'll read how the child can play with, uh, with the serpents and, and they won't be hurt. This rule of Christ on this planet. I have to tell you, that would be marvelous, wouldn't it? You talk about justice in the right way, at the right time, and, and, and people being accountable as we should. There would be no bribes. There would be no plea bargains. It would be a fantastic uh, uh, era of unprecedented peace and rule because Jesus Christ sits on the earthly throne there. You who know Christ as Savior today, it says in the Scriptures, you'll reign with Him. And in fact, it's been highly suggested that you will be responsible for certain sections of that rule. Interesting, isn't it? But that would be the kingdom. And to the Jewish fellows who were listening to this little teaching of the Savior, most likely that's what popped into their head, that this earthly rule of Jesus Christ upon the earth, and it would be a glorious time. Because as they looked at their situation in the New Testament, who was ruling? Rome. And the Romans could come, and they're very dominant, and they're very strong, and they're very powerful, and they're very ruthless. Remember the, history, the historians of, of yesteryear, they talk about how the roads were lined with cruci crucifixions at eye level, so you would be scared of Rome. And, and the Jews, Jesus even taught them, he said, now listen, the soldier tells you to go one mile, go two. They had a law that said they could, the, a young guy could carry the soldier's pack for at least a mile. You go too, Jesus said. This whole idea of oppression. And when you read that history about how Rome overthrew Jerusalem in 70 AD and the massive deaths that occurred, the people that fled and all the Jews that were killed, Rome was, was the dominant kingdom. And so if you were a Jewish person in that day and you said, thy kingdom come, you'll go, yes, praise God, let it come today. Get rid of this sickening, oppressive Roman rule. Can you hear that? That's exactly what had been thought in their head. Christ will be on the... The disciples asked Jesus about this at least twice on the record. Once in Matthew, I believe it's chapter 24, and the other is in Acts chapter 1. They anticipated it. They wanted it. They longed for it. So when the Lord Jesus was teaching, he said your kingdom come, I think it popped into their head, this idea of the earthly rule of Christ. There are many other facets. I've explained four of them to you. There's perhaps one more, and in, uh, but for the sake of time, we'll move on. Now, that's the precept. That's really what I would call the theological precept of thy kingdom come. And the, the take-home message from this kingdom come is it's, it's, it, it's the sovereignty of God over all nature and mankind. So the, the priorities of God are being done. The, uh, 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 the principles of God are being done. God is physically present. Everything will be about the mind and will of God. Everything. And the nice thing about that is if he is a, a, a God that possesses the ideas of peace and grace and love and balance, and so it'll be a, it'll be a, a, a perfect re regime, unheard of before unknown. Some said that Solomon's regime came close to that, possibly so, but not like the one that Jesus Christ will have. Right? So this is the, the precept idea. But then he turns and he says, in principle, he says, 
your will be done. The kingdom idea, your principles, your priorities, your precepts, let them reign, let them shower us, let your sovereignty be there. But now we refer, we narrow it down to this principle that says, let the will of God be done right now. Now, the will of God, that's a tough one. What is the will of God? Some say, well, it's the predetermined uh, things that God knows that he wants done and will happen. It gets diluted with other religions. You know, the will of our God must happen. It's almost like a catchphrase that, that explains away uh, fatalities and, and death and sorrow. And, and we don't really have a concept. It's almost like it's the, uh, the, we throw up our hands. Well, it's the will of God my house burned down. Uh, you know, what can I do? I don't think that's the idea of the will of God. The will of God was much more concrete. Did you know? And when the Lord Jesus, and this is in Matthew chapter 26, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. You might want to look at this one. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you'll see the actual exchange of wills. Now, I want you to read that with me if you have just a minute. I, I realize our clock is on, on fast mode today. And if you look in Matthew chapter 26, verse 36, it says this. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. Notice verse 38. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and pray with me. Notice they couldn't do that. God is still bidding people to come and pray with him. Oh, my Father, verse 39, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The specificity of the will of God is being expressed. And it's at the moment of the, the very hours before the cross itself. And, he, and Jesus says, if it, can, if it can go past me, if it can just go around me, let it be. But, but... I want what you have in mind to be done. See, the will of God. That's depicting, illustrating this sort of specificity to the plan of God. Now, the question in this principle is, how do you bring the will of God, which is always done in heaven? You remember Satan, he tried to undo that in his coup attempt. The will of God, and he was ejected, but the will of God is always done in heaven. He says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth that is in heaven. How do you bring that will from a place where it's treated with great reverence, honor, and always accomplished to a place, a planet, in which it's never done? The will of God is not valued here. The will of God is, de is deplored, is ridiculed, is criticized, is made fun of, is, is, is trampled. How do we do that? How do we actually take the will of God and bring it behind enemy lines? That's what's happening in our little, little church with about 10 young people every Thursday morning at 6.30. We ask the Lord, either you are not willing that any should perish. That implies that you would love to see all saved. And in light of your will, would you open doors for us as you have already pre-set, as you have already prepared so that we might give the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ. 
And guess what's happening? The will of God, which is always done in heaven, is actually being done in our little piece of real estate. I'm going to ask you, do you sit back and you wonder why things just don't seem to get uh, changed? If it changes, it seems to change for the worse. How is it that we can see those who have been hurt in the past, maybe those who hold the bitternesses, those who are jealous, those who are perhaps uh, 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 hooked on the, on the sin of pride or self-centeredness, how can that ever be different? Are we doomed to only say, it's, it's, it is what it is. That's what we say. We throw up our hands. It is what it is. Let me tell you something. Jesus was saying here, the will of God, which is always done in heaven, can actually be done in a place which it's never done. And the people group that can actually see that happen are the people who know Christ as Savior and pray. That's you and me, isn't it? You see, in the day when our church was in terrible shape, we had dwindled in numbers, we had infighting. You, you, you've heard the story. The only thing that changed us over a 10-year window was that we agreed to pray, and we were, going, we were willing to die praying. If that's, I know it sounds dramatic, but we were willing to stay at the throne of grace every week, many times a day, and pray. Now we're 30 years later, and the Lord's given us 179 saints and we've got 10 people carrying the evangelistic load of the whole assembly. We have five elders, and we have what we never had before. We love each other. How does that happen? The will of God is brought to a place where the will of Satan is the rule of the day and now can actually take over and rule in a time before Christ is literally on the throne. Do you see the great privilege we have in principle, the principle of this idea? Oh, saints, I don't know what we're thinking, but it is invaluable for us to realize the priority and the power that God gives us. He literally transfers to us in his sovereign decision-making so that we could see the will of God done. If there's anything that should happen as a result, we should, we should avail ourselves of that. Can I ask you a question? Add up the moments that you've prayed yesterday. 20 minutes? Well, I was about a minute to pray for dinner. Well, that was always a 30-second spot. So really a minute and a half, three meals a day. I remember at around 10, I asked the Lord to let me have all the red light, or green lights so I could get to my appointment. So that was, I don't know, 10 seconds there. And then there was a moment where I, I, I heard some on the radio and I remembered to pray for the Bahamas. There's another 10 seconds. You know, I, I'm, I'm probably being conservative here, but maybe four and a half minutes. Four, just four and a half minutes. What's the percent of that of a day? 0 0.01. That sums up most of our prayer life. How do you want the will of God to come? Is it because we planned well? Is it because we were really brilliant, sharp people and we anticipated every obstacle and we have a contingency plan? Is that how the will of God is done? No. It will never be done like that. Jesus said it this way, if you abide in me, you ask me what you will. 
You ask me, just ask me. I'm good for it. That's how the word of God is done. Now, the last few minutes, I want to talk about the practice. And the practice was in that phrase back in Matthew that says, on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the question can be posed, I prayed in Jesus' name. See, in, in John chapter 14, Jesus says, if you pray in my name believing, you will do greater works than these. John chapter 15, the same idea is repeated. If you abide in me, you ask what you will, and I will do it. And so we have this sort of concept by John, John's writings, that says that we pray, approaching God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God obligates himself to answer. So I prayed that I would have a horse and it didn't come. I prayed that I would, miss, I would not miss my flight, and I did, which actually happened today. What, what is this thing? How, it's not working. You ever, hear, you ever say that? It's not working. My mother is still sick. My brother did die. It's not working. And we wonder what the problem is. And we're tempted, you would never say this, but I'll say it since I have the microphone, we're tempted to believe for a second that maybe this isn't what it seems to be. That God doesn't answer. We're tempted to think that. I bet there's not a soul in this room that has thought that once in their life. The problem with that theology is that it's only half of the information. Turn, if you would, to 1 John Chapter 5 and verse 14. Now, what you want to notice as you're turning to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14 is that this is the same author who wrote those scriptures that I quoted to you from John chapter 14 and John chapter 15 about asking my name and he will do it. The same author, the same one that heard those words and wrote them out is now writing a letter that adds to the insight that may not have been specifically stated in the Gospel of John, but now is added in his letter or the epistle. And what I'm going to read to you is the other half of the equation. Are you ready? It goes like this. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him. Notice it's in him. We've got to be in Christ. That if we ask anything, broad terms, no limits, According to his will, he hears us. Notice the next verse. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, and we're saying it backwards now, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. The key element of this portion of the information on prayer is that we ask according to his will. Now, what in the world is that? That's like get out of jail free. That's, this is what somebody said to me. They said, well, I pray that this person will be healed, and I, and I pray in his name God must heal them, right? I said, well, I pray the same way and the same fervor, but according to his will. And he said to me, but that doesn't have faith. I said, it most certainly does. And here's what I want you to remember. When you pray according to God's will, you are saying the following things. I trust you more than what I think is the right thing to do. It is most certainly a great exercise of faith. And without faith, you can't please God. So you've got to have faith, right? 
So faith is built into this concept of 1 John 5.14, praying according to his will. Let me see if I can give you an illustration. And yes, it comes from the life of Gracie. Where else would I get these illustrations? So I take Gracie to, to the store. We have, a, we have a little thing we do. She's my youngest child. The last one is a girl. And yes, I'm going to spoil her. Absolutely. At least I try to hold it back. Anyway, we go, and so we're over there, we're running errands, and I take her to the candy aisle at Walmart. Have you ever been to the candy aisle at Walmart? It's like this. Candy. Little child, you know, looking up. Wow. The Mount Everest of candy. Walmart. So we look at this long row, everything under the sun. I said, why don't you go pick something? I want to get you something. She goes, why don't you pick, Daddy? I go, sweetheart, this is my, my gift to you, and I want you to get what you want. I want it to be all, you to be as happy as you can be. She turns to me, and she looks me in the eye like the little girls do, and she says, but I like what you choose for me more than what I like to choose. Do you hear that? I like, to I like the decisions you make for me more than the decisions I make for me. That's praying in the will of God. And in order for her to do that, that means that little girl had to trust me. Trust me that I would do her right all the time. That I always think of her in a thousand different ways and that she trusts my love for her. And when you pray in the will of God, what you're really doing is you say, I trust that your love is greater and more wise and brilliant than what I'm asking you. So be it. So when we pray in the will of God, it's not, it's not letting God get off free, is it? It's not sort of giving an excuse just in case God doesn't do what I petition. It's really a trusting moment that every child needs to have with their father like Grace and I could have in a Walmart somewhere in Kansas. And let me tell you something. When that little girl said that to me, my heart just got a whole lot closer to her heart. And when I gave, when I picked out what she wanted because I thought about it and I, I thought what she thought liked and I gave her that, her heart was welded to my heart. And prayer then does something that is so unique and unspoken in our circles, but prayer has a way of taking the heart of the child of God and the heart of God himself and welding, molding them into oneness. And isn't that what Jesus said, though, that the Father would come and dwell with you and we would be one? That's the beauty of why God wants us to pray. He wants that closeness. Jesus said it this way, abide in me and I in you. I, do you know what he means? I want you to abide in me. I want you to be with me and I with you. So, be beloved, as we think about prayer, I want you to think about it from three things. The precept of the kingdom. What does that mean? Where they're at on the grid. What they would have been thinking about as Jesus spoke those words. 
the sovereign rule of God. It's a beautiful thing. It's not a nasty thing. Satan's rule is tyrannical, not Christ's. Number two, the will of God. Taking the will of God. How do you bring it in principle, the principle of this idea? How do you bring that which is always done behind enemy lines and which it's never done? It's always and will always be by plan. And how do we practice it? Well, the will of God is not just sort of an escape clause that lets us be uh, tolerated when we don't get what we petition. It's a very loving expression. It's a very tender moment between our Father and His Son. Are you needing that tender moment? Are you needing this closeness that you've been craving with the God of the universe? Then I would suggest to you that prayer needs to become your best friend. I would suggest to you as an assembly that you cannot maintain all of the activities that you do unless you pray. I think that, now that is very pleasing to the heart of God. Let's pray. Lord Father, this morning, we've stopped to consider this idea, this concept, this, this, this thing. And the Lord Jesus, he, he spoke it to us and he gave it to us. And, and, and Father, I have to say to you, it, it's, it's astounding to me. You, you actually wait in the closet just to hear my voice, that you actually are there right now. And when we're in the closet, and I pray... You're not distracted. You're not wondering what are the things you should be doing. You don't take text messages. You just listen to the voice of your child. Oh, my father, how stupid have I been. How foolish am I that I would not understand your great passion for me. And you long for that moment when I will just cast myself on your grand, great love and just rest in it like it's the... It's the Comforter of all time. Oh, Father, forgive us, please. We have not understood you in prayer. We've not understood what makes you tick. Oh, I'm so sorry. We don't want to do that anymore, Father. We want to be a people who prays. Not, 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 not some sort of prayer coins in the vending machine of glory. We just want to say, we like your choices more than I like what I receive. In Jesus' name we pray.